you a little emotional there, Laura? Don't you love it? I love it when somebody's singing and they get emotional. I don't know if you love it. I love it. Uh, you know, the words are real and uh, to, to that, that individual. And I love it because I can relate. I know you know that I occasionally break up up here a little bit. And uh, I know it's not very manly, but you know what? That's all right. It's all right. Uh, and, uh, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. I'll shut up. Start preaching. Um, it was 1984. I was... 29 years old, I'd only been a Christian for a year and I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was, the only thing I could tell you was I was jazzed about Jesus Christ. That's all I knew. Didn't know much about the Bible. I was like the, the, the person that Paul describes in Romans chapter 10. I was zealous but not in accordance with the knowledge. Do you know that, that verse where he talks about that? I was zealous but not in accordance with knowledge. Uh, the, the church I was converted in did not really preach the Bible or teach the Bible strongly, and so I wasn't really being fed. And I, again, I was very immature in my Christian life, and I didn't really understand all the dynamics of that, that I really was hungry for the Word. I needed the Word. I needed it, but I wasn't really getting it. And so I was listening to a lot of guys on the radio. Uh, a lot of these guys, you know, listening to guys on the radio is, is, is okay. Uh, I guess it depends on who you're listening to. Right? Because there's some, some really messed up people uh, allegedly preaching the gospel on, on radio and television. They just, their theology is, is a train wreck. So you really have to be careful about who you're listening to. And I was, during this time, I was listening to a lot of Word of Faith guys, you know, the, the name it and claim it guys, the guys that uh, basically say, you know, if you, if you rub God just right and you pray just right and you believe real hard and your faith is strong, God will do anything you ask Him to do. And I was listening to a lot of guys like that, and I still keenly remember it was a summer afternoon, and I was driving to the hospital to see my grandmother who was dying of cancer. And I was listening to this preacher, and he got me all worked up. So I walked into the hospital room. My mom was there, and I said, Mom, the, the, the Lord wants to heal Grandma. So we're going to pray over her, and we're going to lay our hands on her, and we're going to pray over her. And all we have to do is really believe, and all we have to do is really pray hard. And all we have to do is really have faith. And God will heal her. Well, three days later, my grandmother died. Three days later, she died. And you know, if, if I had known my Bible, which I was a young Christian, but if I had known my Bible, I wouldn't have let that, that uh, radio preacher lead me astray. Right? And I wouldn't have confused my mom and, and given her false hope. I wouldn't have tried to, to use a prayer formula to obligate God to perform on demand. Right? I wouldn't have tried to usurp the sovereignty of God in prayer. I wouldn't have tried to overstep my bounds as a child of God in prayer. I just didn't know the Word. Zeal is a good thing. But zeal without knowledge does not magnify and honor Jesus Christ. Zeal is a good thing, but without knowledge it can wreck all kinds of havoc. And today, we're going to learn about prayer. God talks to us in 1 John chapter 5 about prayer. We're to be zealous in prayer. God invites us and commands us to come and pray. But the Bible instructs us to pray in accordance with knowledge in our study today we encounter the preeminent teaching on prayer in all the Bible. 
It's the preeminent teaching. It's the teaching that informs and elucidates all other teaching about prayer in the Bible. It's paramount that we understand this verse, that we might learn in a, to pray in a way that truly honors the Lord and truly magnifies Him. As we said repeatedly, we're about to finish our series. I'll have one more sermon on 1 John. It's gone so quickly. <clears throat> but 1 John is uniquely the book of assurance in the Bible. If you're struggling with assurance, if you want to know if you're a Christian or not, go read 1 John. God says in 1 John, this is what my kids look like. This is how they live. This is, what, this is how they, they prosecute their faith. This is how they relate to me. This is how they relate to the body of Christ. So if, you want, if, you want to, if you're struggling with assurance in, in your life, go to 1 John. That's what 1 John is about. And as John finishes this book, he ends with a flurry of certainties. You're going to see seven times in the last nine verses the word no. And we talked about this last week. God wants us to know we're His. Why does God want us to know we're His? What does a fully persuaded Christian do? He lives a fully persuaded life, right? He can live a bold life. He can live a Hebrews 11 life. He knows he belongs to God. God wants us to know it, and then He wants us to go live it. Let me ask you, brother and sister, do you know you belong to God, and are you living like you belong to God? This is what God wants His children to know, that we do belong to Him, that we might live that life that says we belong to Him. John tells us another thing that we can be certain about tonight is we can be certain our Father hears every prayer. We can be certain He hears us. And we can be certain that He will answer. So I'm going to read again the verses. I hope you have a Bible. Uh, just the first two here, 14 and 15. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, uh, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence... Listen to, to John. This is the confidence that we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of Him. Did you see it? Three times the word... Uh, pardon me, two times the word no and one time the word confidence. John wants us to understand what biblical prayer really is. Not this junk that permeates much of the modern church. He wants us to know what real biblical prayer looks like. And when I read this text, my mind went immediately, and I'm just going to jump over real quick and read uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. You, you guys will be familiar with this. But I couldn't help but think of this verse when I was studying this week. Here's what Jesus says. Ask. What else? What does He say after that? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and what? You shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, uh, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? These are breathtaking promises from the lips of God incarnate. Ask, seek, knock. God is inviting us to come and pray. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. 
Uh, I heard a preacher say one time, and it's kind of a tricky little phrase, but I love it. He says, nothing never happens when we, when we pray. Nothing never happens when we pray. God hears His people. And God answers His people. We're going to talk a little bit more. God is eager to hear your prayers. We have an invitation. And these, these, these promises of Jesus in this Matthew 7 text are astounding when we realize what the ground is that we stand on when we come in prayer. Is it because we're good little religious men and women and boys and girls? Or we're good little Catholics or we're good little Protestants? Is, it, is, it, is that it? It's because we're religious and we do religious things? Is that our hope in prayer? No. What is our hope in prayer? Our Father. Did you hear it in Matthew 7.11? Listen, you may have had a great father. A human father. You may have, you know, some of us in here maybe didn't have so great a father. But you may have had the perfect human father. But Scripture says he's evil compared to God. He doesn't know how to do good to his kids compared to how God does good to his kids. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is eager and God invites you to come and pray. But the ground that we stand on in prayer is God Himself. And I just, want to make, I just want to make four or five comments about what you have to know about God if you're going to know how to pray according to knowledge. If you're going to know how to really pray biblically, you first, you have to start with who God is. You have to start with who God is. So I just want to make a few comments about Him. First, God is infinitely sovereign. He is supreme. He is almighty. No one or nothing can restrain Him from answering the prayers of His children. Nothing can stop Him. He's irrepressible. He's irrepressible in this. He hears and He answers. I love that about Him. He's infinitely righteous. God can only answer right. It doesn't matter if it's yes or if it's no. When He answers, it's perfect. God's answer is always flawlessly perfect. It's always right. He is righteous. God is infinitely good. Every answer you get from God in prayer will be in your best interest, even if the answer is no. It will be in your best interest. God will be working all things for good to those who love Him, those called according to His purpose. One of my favorite verses. I know I, I hammer that one a lot. God is infinitely wise. Friends, when God answers your prayer, uh, His answer will be flawless in its wisdom, timing, and effect. It will be perfect. It will be all wise. And lastly, God is infinitely loving. He answer, His answer in prayer will always be in keeping with His infinite love for His child. His unfathomable love for His child. His eternal love for his child. Friends, this gets me jazzed up. This is, who, this is who we're praying to. He knows what he's doing when he answers the prayers of his children. I've said this to you many times, and I love to say, talk about God like this. He's an omnipotent giver. He just never stops giving. This is who He is. This is His character. He gives and He gives and He gives and He gives. All you have to do is look at the cross. He gives. He gives whatever it takes to redeem His children and to bring them to Himself. You can't stop Him from giving to His children. I love what John Piper says about this. Let me just read a, a brief quote. Our Father's heart is full and deep and unshakable, uh, full of deep and unshakable happiness. And we may be sure that when we come to Him, we will not find... Now, some of you may have had a father like this. 
But listen to what Piper says. When we come to our Heavenly Father, we won't find a frustrated, gloomy, irritable Father who's out of sorts and wants to be left alone. That's not who our Heavenly Father is. He's not like that. But instead, we'll find a Father whose heart is so full of joy, it will spill out onto all of His children. Don't you love that? God is eager. He's eager to hear from you and answer your prayers. One commentator, I was reading about this Matthew 7 passage, and one commentator said that God insists that we come to Him in prayer. He insists that we come to Him in prayer. What is the promise of God? The asker receives, the seeker finds, and the knocker gets an open door. Friends, this is an awesome promise from the Lord. And how does He finish that Matthew 7:11 text? He says, I know how to give good things to my kids. He insists upon giving what is good to those who ask Him. Whether it's yes, brethren, or whether it's no, He's giving you the best thing. He's giving you the best thing. I love that this is not only the command of God, it is the delight of God. You know what Proverbs 15.8 says, the prayer of the upright is my delight, says Jehovah. It is my delight. God is eager to answer our prayer. Listen to Isaiah 65.24. Co it will come to pass that before you call what? What does God say? Before you call what? I will answer, He says. Before you call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, He says, I will hear. I want to take just one minute. I want to stop for one second. And I, I just want to uh, make a comment on the, the low view of prayer that permeates much of the church. In the modern church, uh, prayer has descended into somewhat of an abyss. And it's become simply the sum and substance of prayer is submitting our list of wants to God. That's it. You ask many Christians, and this is pretty much their view of prayer. It's simply petitioning God for what I want. And I expect God to hear and I expect God to answer. It's all a one-sided thing. This is uh, the low view that permeates much of the church. And friends, when you, if you have that kind of attitude in prayer... You're simply turning God into your errand boy. You, he, you're, you're, he's in your employ. He's your servant. If, if He's just marching to, to, your, to your drummer, if you stop and think about it, just for a little while, you'll realize that this is not sound. This is not biblically sound to think like this. Is biblical prayer, uh, biblical prayer a blank check? Is it carte blanche? Does God surrender His sovereignty uh, in, in prayer? Is He obliged to answer every one of your prayers just, just, like, uh, just like you want? Is that the definition of biblical prayer? What does He say in the text? Look what He says in the text, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to what? Someone tell me. What does it say in the text? According to what? His will. Friends, this is biblical prayer. We're going to talk a little bit more of how we come to understand His will. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But as we ask according to His will, He hears us and we know uh, that He hears us in whatever we ask and we know that we will have the requests which we have asked of Him. Uh, brethren, Scripture always interp interprets Scripture. I've said this to you a thousand times. Scripture must always interpret Scripture. So this verse here in 1 John chapter 5, it governs what we understand Matthew 7 to say, ask, seek, knock. So we don't misunderstand that promise. God 
God gives us this, this, uh, this word about how to pray according to knowledge. And so we don't uh, misapply the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John where He says four times, ask anything in My name and I'll do it. Man, I've heard so much bad teaching on that verse. I bet you have too. I've heard so much bad teaching on that verse. Let me ask you, friend, what does it mean to, to pray in Jesus' name? Is that simply a suffix that we add to the end? Is that just a formula to get God to perform? Is that what it means to pray in Jesus' name? What does it really mean to pray in Jesus' name? You know what it means when you're saying that? When you're saying in Je you know what that means? In Jesus' will, Lord God, I lift up this prayer to You. In His will, for His glory. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not a suffix we add to, to have a magic formula with God. That's not what it is. I know that by and large that's what it is used for in, in, in many, many places, but that's not what it means. When we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, it means we're praying the will of Jesus Christ. We're seeking to pray the will of Jesus Christ. That is the biblical model to pray according to the will of of God. And here's biblical prayer. We come humbly before Him. We offer up our petitions in great humility and even boldness. He invites us to boldly come and, and we, we offer up our petitions and we leave them with Him. You know, He's God and we're not, right? Everybody got that? Anybody confused on that? He's God. We're not. We humbly bring our petitions to Him. And we leave them with Him, trusting Him to do what seems best. Listen, friends, how did Jesus teach us to pray? How did He teach us to pray in the Lord's, in the Lord's uh, Prayer? Does anybody rem remember? How did He teach us to pray in the Lord? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done. This is how He taught us to pray. We're supposed to pray like this. You know, Rick Warren's right about... Uh, in his book when he says that, that opening line, best opening line of any book I've ever read. Didn't really all, like the book all that much, but I love that opening line. It's not about you. Friends, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. It's about the will of the Father. This is how He taught us to pray. Oh, this is how He actually prayed. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night that He was in such travail? And I just want to share the, the, the passage with you. My soul is in agony and deeply grieved to the point of death, Jesus says. So he fell on his face and he, he cried out to the Lord three times to take this cup from me. But what did Jesus say? Not my will, but what? Thine. Friends, this is, what, this is how Jesus tells us to pray and this is how Jesus demonstrates and models prayer for us. We cry out boldly. We ask, we seek, we knock. But we ultimately bow to the sovereign will of God. This is what Jesus did. It's what Jesus did. This is biblical prayer. I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, what true Christian wouldn't really want that anyway? Think about that for five seconds. We'll give you five seconds to think about it. Okay? Would you want anything other than the perfect will of God in your life? Would you? Would you want anything other than that? I don't think so. Let me say it this way. If you really know Him, if you really know Him, that's a, that's a, that's a simple answer. You don't want anything but the perfect will 
of God. What happened to Paul over in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Paul got a big no, didn't he? He entreated the Lord three times that the Lord would, would remove that thorn in the flesh. What did God say to Paul? No. Paul wasn't a name it and claim it. Paul wasn't a word of faith man. Paul was a man who brought his needs boldly to God and then humbly submitted to the answer of God. So, uh, Paul gets, uh, gets to know. God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Brother and sister, sometimes the Lord will leave us in weakness that His power might be perfected in us and the unbelievers around us would just see the power of Jesus as we walk in weakness and in trial and infirmity and difficulty. So did Paul lose faith in God? Did Paul lose faith in the power of prayer? Did he get his feelings hurt and get a pout on with God? What did Paul do? You've got to love Paul here. What does he say? He says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And then he finishes, he says, Therefore, I am well contented in the no you gave me, great God. Don't you love that? Let me ask you, Christian friend, is that where you are in prayer? Are you well contented? with the answers of God in prayer. Are you well contented? Listen, friend, this is biblical prayer. This is biblical prayer. This is not some of the junk you hear on TV and the radio. This is biblical prayer. That's what this is. Paul was no name it and claim it. He asked and he sought and he knocked and he listened to the Spirit and then he gladly bowed to the all-wise, all-compassionate, perfect, sovereign will of a good and gracious God. Is that how it is with you in your prayer life? I pray that it is. You know, the, that's the meaning of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says to pray all times in the Spirit. We're supposed to pray in the Spirit. Not just in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Prayer is more than just sending up our requests. We're supposed to be listening. We're supposed to be hearing God. There's supposed to be communion going on. There's supposed to be com communication going on. Two-way communication. We're supposed to be listening to the Spirit of God. That he, may, that he may move our prayers into the perfect will of God. And He will over time as, as we continue to pray. That's what, that's what biblical prayer is supposed to look like. There's a story from John Piper. Now you got to appreciate and love John Piper's transparency here. I've told you this story before, but he and his wife were praying intensely about a, a real personal family matter. And they really wanted God to, to answer that prayer. And... Uh, um, Piper said the Holy Spirit finally convicted him that he had, at some point in his prayers, he had crossed over into demanding God to answer just like he wanted. And the Holy Spirit came to Piper and he said, he said, you know, it, you're not going to be happy if God doesn't answer this just like you want. You've, you've, you've let go of your happiness in God and now your happiness is contingent upon an answered prayer. Friends, that's never right. That's never right. Our happiness has to be in God and God alone. But the Holy Spirit convicted Piper, and Piper said, I realized I was merely nagging God. I had gotten through that place somehow in his season of prayer, he'd got to the point where he was nagging God. I love that transparency that he shares with us. And he went to his wife and he says, We just got to give this up. Yes, we'll continue to pray about it, but we got to really give it to God and trust him to answer in his sovereign good pleasure. Friends, I want to encourage you in your prayer life don't be nagging God. Be making your petitions and be praying. But then be trusting the Lord. Be trusting the Lord. 
If God says no, we know the no is perfect. This is how it is for the, the, the genuine believer, the mature believer. If God says no, we know that the no is perfect. And that's really what verses 16 and 17 are illustrating. It's illustrating the relationship between God's sovereignty and between prayer. Now this is a strange verse and uh, people get all exercised about this verse. And Of course, when, when, you, when you start talking about this verse, people want to know, well, what is that sin leading unto death? Which one is it? Because I don't want to do that one. You know, this is what you always hear. It kind of uh, boils down to that many, many times. But let's read the text one more time. 16 and 17, 1 John 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make re requests for this. And then he finishes up, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. There's a lot of confusion about this verse. Um, there's uh, good theologians who disagree on this verse. Uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I'm going to give you my take. I believe it's, my take is in, in context, and I believe my take is, is true to Scripture as a whole. Um, some people want to say that this is an unbeliever. I say this is a believer. I, th I think the text is very clear. If you look at way, the way he opens, he says, if anyone sees his brother... Brother is the Greek word uh, Adelphus, and it appears 384 times in the Scripture. And every time it appears in Scripture, it's, it's, it's translated brother. And John uses the term brother when he's, talking about, when he's talking about a fellow believer. It's my opinion that this is talking about a believer. This is talking about a believer. So you say, well, Jim, you mean a believer can commit a sin that leads to physical death? Is that what I'm saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yes. Do we have a demonstration of this in, in the Bible anywhere? Yes. How many times? In the New Testament alone? Three. At least three times. A Christian can sin with such a high hand and bring such disgrace upon the body of Christ that God will take their life. It is His prerogative. Friend, you know this about sin. What, is, what are the wages of sin? Death. Every sin you commit is worthy of death. I want you to understand, God will take out the believer at times. It's very rare, but He will do it. It's His prerogative to do it. But that believer has not lost his eternal life. He's lost his physical life. And let me give you the three instances in the Bible. Acts chapter 5, many of you know this account. Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? They lied to God. They lied to the Spirit of God. What happened? They carried them out. And you remember what the church, remember what it said about the church? The church was in great fear. Friends, sometimes God will purify His church. And He will chasten and discipline His church. He's a loving Father. We're not illegitimate children. He will discipline us. He will discipline us. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5? The believer that, that, that committed this heinous sin in the body of taking his stepmother. Do you remember? What does Paul say about this, this man? What does Paul say about this man? Paul says, Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which is death, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man sinned with such a high hand in the body of Christ that God was going to remove him. And then you also know 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we're going to be taking communion tonight. What does Paul say 
about coming to the table uh, in an unworthy manner. What does he say? What was going on in the Corinthian church? Paul said, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Many of you are coming in an unworthy manner. And because of that, many of you are weak and sick and some of you sleep, which is simply a euphemism for death. He says, you're drinking judgment to yourself when you come to the table of God in an unworthy manner. Friends, sometimes God uh, chastises and disciplines in this way. I know you're not going to hear this preached on TV or on the radio. I know that it's not, you're not going to read it in one of Rick Warren's book or Joe Osteen's book. But this is what God says. This is what God says. Okay? This is what He says. At times, God in His perfect judgment protects the purity of His church and He will remove the high-handed sinner. It's His prerogative. And I just want to make clear, you understand, it's not a specific sin. It's not some specific sin that someone has done. It's just the last one. It's not a specific sin. It's just the last one that God is going to allow. And God takes that believer out. He takes him onto heaven. And I want you to understand, this is a sub-point of what John is saying to us in 14 and 15. This is simply an illustration. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying if a man has sinned the sin leading to death, you might as well not pray for him because he's a goner. Now, we don't understand this. We can't know. You can't know if I've sinned the sin unto death. So the biblical mandate is that we always intercede and pray for one another. We always do. But friends, the point is this. The illustration is this. That if God has sovereignly decided a thing, that's it. That's what He's saying. That's it. John simply says, I, I tell you not to even pray about this. I know it's confusing. I know it's difficult. I know it's a challenge. But this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Rightly divided. So this raises the question in some minds, if God's will is sovereign... Why should we pray at all? If God's will is fixed, you know, some Christians believe incorrectly and it's because they haven't been taught. They believe that they're changing God's mind when they pray. Friends, uh, I go back to MacArthur's thing. Do, do you really want to change God's mind? Or do you think He might know a little better than you? So, the question arises. It's one of my FAQs. It's one of the questions I get the most as a pastor. One of the questions I get asked the most. Jim, why should I pray if God's sovereign? Why should I pray if His will is fixed? Why should I pray? Anybody know an answer? We talked about this last fall. Does anybody remember some of the things we talked about? Okay, for one thing, uh, prayer is communion. For one thing, we're commanded to come and pray. And as uh, Monsia said, uh, really prayer is not to change God. It's to, 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 to change us. But there's this great example in, in Ezekiel 36. You may remember we talked about it last fall. God says, I'm going to bless Israel. I'm just going to pour, out, uh, I'm just going to pour blessing out on Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 36 and 37. God says, I'm going to do it. I've said it and I'm going to do it. But then He says this, I will have the house of Israel ask me to do this for them. Now why does God have Israel pray to Him and ask for these blessings? You remember what God says? That they may know I am God. Friends, prayer uniquely puts us in that prostrate position before God. 
in prayer, if we're coming in a true spirit of prayer, biblical prayer, we come with great humility. We come owning our own impotence. We come uh, owning our own frailty. We come owning our own inability to change anything in this life. And we cry out to the omnipotent God who can change everything in the wink of an eye. That's what prayer is about. And we come and, and we lay our frailty before Him. But God says, I work through the prayers of My people. He doesn't need the prayers of His people, but this is one of the awesome things He does. He works through them. So the pra your prayers are actually a means to His end. Do you understand? He works His sovereign good pleasure through your prayers. Church. This is why we're called to pray. This is why the New Testament tells us six times to devote yourself to prayer. Give yourself to prayer because God is sovereignly working His good pleasure in them. Friends, prayer is an, this is an awesome thing. And when we get it right and we get it biblically and we realize we're not just writing a letter to Santa Claus, that this is a huge thing. That there, we're in on all that God wants to do on the earth. It's big. It's big. It's beautiful. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, Colossians 4.2. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. I love what MacArthur says about this. Uh, pardon me, what Piper says about this. It's not that we're praying 24-7, hour, 24 /7, right? We're not just verbally praying 24-7. But our default mental state is, O oh Lord, I lift this to You. O oh Lord, help me in this. O oh Lord, be glorified in this. This is our default mental state as we process life. Let me ask you, uh, any of you guys read these books on the book table? And if you haven't, I want, I want you to come and get one. All, by the way, some of you new people, all our books are free. Just take them. Read them. Pass them on. Bring them back if you want. Bring them back if you don't want. Don't bring them back if you don't want. These books about Mueller, George Mueller. Mueller was a great model of prayer. You need to read these books. You need to read these books. He, he just modeled prayer. And Mueller teaches us something about perseverance. You know, he'd already built that first orphan home and he felt led to build the second one and the third one. And so he began a season of prayer. And when you read Mueller's books, you'll see two, two things about prayer that he, when he talks about. He uses the word believing prayer and he uses the word persevering in prayer. He uses those two phrases many, many, many times in his autobiographies. But uh, you know how long George Mueller prayed for that second and third uh, orphan home? You know how long he prayed about that? 11 years. Let me ask you, beloved, have you ever prayed for anything for 11 years? God means for you to persist in your prayer. And as you persist and as you commune with God in prayer, if you're off the mark, He's going to bring you back. If you're, if you're not praying God's will, He's going he's gonna to show you. He's going to reveal that to you. That's part of what prayer is. But we're commanded to come and we're invited to come and God insists that we come with great boldness to pray and bring our requests to the Lord. John Blanchard says that prayer is not wrestling with God's reluctance to bless us. It's laying hold of His willingness to do so. Don't you love that? And this is biblical prayer. We come to God. We, we be still before Him. We listen to His Spirit. We boldly make our petitions. And then we humbly and submissively bow to His perfect, sovereign will. This is biblical prayer. This is biblical prayer. And uh, I'm done. I want to say one more thing.
Uh, I challenged the church uh, last fall to pray like Martin Luther. You remember Martin Luther, the great reformer, the, the founder of the Protestant Reformation? You know what it was said about him when he prayed? He would, he would begin his prayers with such humility and repentance and brokenness that you, you pitied him. But as he worked through confessing his sin, that he would begin to pray with such boldness that you feared for him. And friends, this is how I want to invite you to pray. Broken boldness. Man, the Lord's going to love that. He loves a contrite heart, right? He honors a, a contrite heart and a, a contrite spirit. And He tells us, draw near with confidence the throne of grace. Broken boldness. I want you to remember that. Broken boldness in your prayer life. So, I think I'm every bit as zealous as I was when I was 29 when I tried to manipulate God into healing my grandmother who had cancer. But I think uh, I'm every bit as zealous, but I think I, my, zealous, my zealousness now, my zeal now is in accordance with knowledge. It's in accordance with knowledge. And today it's not my grandmother with cancer, it's my wife with cancer. And you bet I earnestly pray for my wife. You bet I earnestly and zealously and passionately uh, speak her name to Him. It's a pleasure for me and a great comfort for me. And I pray with great anticipation for my beautiful wife and for His precious daughter. But I trust Him. I don't have to dictate to Him anymore. I, I know how to pray according to knowledge now. I, I don't have to demand a miracle from God. I just cry out to Him and His goodness and His mercy and His kindness and all He wants to do in our lives together as, we, as my wife and I walk, as Karen and I walk through this cancer. Friends, I want you to learn how to know Him and trust Him like that. And if God answers no, I want us to learn how to be like Paul. Most gladly I will receive that no. Most gladly. Because I know He can only do what is right. He can only do what is good. Let's be prayer warriors. Let's be zealous in our prayer life. Let's pray according to knowledge. Let's pray biblically in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ and magnifies all that He purposes to do in this place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You've given us this, this awesome and high privilege to, to cry out to You, to ask, to seek, and to knock. And You've commanded and even insisted that we come Father, forgive us if, if we've not uh, fully studied this issue of prayer and we've, we've fallen captive to uh, the siren songs of, of false prophets who want to try to turn biblical prayer into a formula for riches. Father, who, who simply seek to try to manipulate You with some formula for prayer. Lord, forgive us if we've fallen captive to that. We repent of that. We want to learn how to, be, uh, we want to, learn how to pray biblically. We want to learn to pray in a way that, that honors You and, and honors Your sovereignty and, and, and honors Your all-wise purposes in the world. Lord, we pray that You would grant this church a spirit of prayer. That we might be praying for this church. Be praying for all that You want to do here. All the lives You want to change. All the souls You want to save. Lord, bring in hundreds. 
Bring in thousands. We're praying for you to come down in Milan. For there to be a, a, a revival not only in the international community, but in the Italian community. That thousands and tens of thousands would come to know you. They would grow weary of their sin. And they would cry out for a great Savior. They would cry out for Jesus Christ. Lord God, we cry out to You and pray that You come in great power. We boldly cry out. And we humbly submit to Your perfect timing and Your perfect will, Lord. Will it be 11 years? Will it be 20 years? Will it be 30 years? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when You send the revival. We will have the privilege to simply pray for it. Give us a burden to pray, Lord. Give us a burden to pray, to participate in Your sovereign pleasure here. To bring in all Your people for Yourself. Oh God, we praise You and we love You and we thank You for this awesome privilege. You hear us and You answer us. It is, it is unspeakable. We praise You, Lord Jesus. We pray in Your name. Amen. We're going to uh, celebrate the Lord's table. As I said, we have open communion. All who have professed Christ and followed Him in baptism are, are very welcome to come and partake. Um, the way we do this, Adam will play and uh, prepare your hearts. And as you're, as you're prepared to come, come up and, and take the cup, take the bread, go back to your seat. And as Adam finishes, I'll stand and read a text and then we'll partake, okay? Um, uh, not to worry. If we run out of cups tonight, not to worry. Um, we may, not to worry. We're going to proceed, okay? We're going to proceed. So let's, uh, let's rejoice in all that Jesus Christ has done for us as we come to the table.